Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Our studies so far also suggest that political leaders such as Donald Trump calling for um, people to come to the Capitol on January 6th, uh, encouraging strength uh, directly against the Capitol and weak Republicans in the Capitol. That uh, may well have been quite important in terms of how that collective violence occurred. But what we want to understand is what is the degree of the sentiments in the population that political figures may be able to incite. And if that's very, very tiny and trivial, then it's not really going to matter very much. If it's sizable, however, then we need to realize that um, the ability to have uh, replays of January 6th-like events could be far more possible than we think. Robert Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He also runs UChicago's project on security and threats called CPOST. Bob has been on our show before, and today he joins us to continue the discussion he and I had a few months ago on domestic extremism. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Bob, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. You're becoming a regular. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I'm very proud to be here. And it's good to talk to you, and I always learn something um, profound, actually. So I'm really looking forward to this. Bob, you were on our show in March, and at that time, you were sharing with us the results of some fascinating research that your center had done on those individuals who'd been arrested for their involvement in their insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. So I'd love to do two things today, if it's okay with you. The first is... I'd love to bring our listeners up to date on that research because I know it's continued. And second, I'd love for you to walk folks through some very interesting new polling that you've done on the insurrectionist movement in the U.S. Does that sound, does that sound okay? Uh, that sounds great. Perfect. Let's start with the research that Post has been doing on those people who've been arrested for what they did on January 6th. When you were with us in the spring, you had looked at the 290 people who'd been arrested at that point. How many folks do you have in your database today? Uh, 604. And did the new information um, from those additional 300 change your findings in any way or just make the findings that you already had more robust? And can you walk us through the findings where they stand today? Absolutely. Uh, It pushed the findings even further in the direction Um, So many people thought initially, uh, with all the pictures of Proud Boys and other militia groups, that what happened on January 6th was essentially a fringe group, um, like militia members, uh, that had come together. And for sure, they were there. However, what we found is that when you study uh, the 600 now of uh, the individuals who actually broke into the Capitol and were arrested for breaking into the Capitol, you get a very different picture. The folks who broke into the Capitol on January 6 were fundamentally coming from the mainstream in ways that previous far-right extremists uh, are not. And why do I say mainstream? Because when you look at the 600, only 14% are members of militias like the Oath Keepers or extremist groups like the Proud Boys. That means 86% are not. 51% of those 600 are business owners or come from white collar occupations, doctors, attorneys, uh, IT specialists. This is very different than we're used to seeing from past far-right extremists, where many of them are unemployed. Here, only about 7% are unemployed, pretty close to the national average, by the way, on January 6th. Um, We're not seeing them come from uh, those marginal stratums of society. Further, over 50% of those arrested for breaking into the Capitol on January 6th live in areas that are large urban areas that Biden won. That is, they're not coming from the rural areas of America that are most associated with Donald Trump and support for Donald Trump. And this tells us something very important. It means that January 6th was not just another instance of far-right Uh, violence. This was a very different thing now, difference enough in degree to be different in kind. 
what we saw is an act of collective political violence attacking our most cherished uh, of symbols of our democracy, um, the U.S. Capitol, in order to change the results of our most cherished constitutional process, who becomes our president of the United States. Um, and they're coming from the mainstream. They're coming from 44 states around the United States. Uh, they're coming from California in large numbers. They're coming from New York and not just New York, but New York City in large numbers. Uh, and so we need to understand that what the January 6th event was, was something really quite different than we've experienced before. And the number one thing that's different about it is how much it's part of the mainstream of America. So, so I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I think the polling is really interesting and I want to, you know, spend a lot of time on that, but what's the kind of bottom line for this? This is a much broader movement than most people think. This is deeper than most people think. How should we think about what these findings mean for where we go from here? Well, the most important thing is studying what happened on January 6th is not just about the past. Yes, it's very important to know who broke into, cap into the Capitol. They broke laws. Yes, it's very important to prosecute them to the extent of the law. But this is not just about history, Michael. This is about what are the prospects for other instances of collective violence, especially related to elections going forward. And that really should be our focus. Um, that today, I have to say, I don't think has been uh, the focus. So yes, we have congressional hearings. Yes, we have a congressional uh, commission, but very much these are focused on drilling into the past, which is very important. I don't wanna underestimate it's not important at all. However, I think that we need to be aware that we are moving into already a politically tumultuous 2022 election season. Um, just in the last month with the events in Afghanistan, uh, which has created a tremendous amount of anger uh, in uh, many of our military circles, military communities, um, with the new mandates um, for COVID, which President Biden has just announced, which are already generating tremendous pushback um, against the federal government, we need to realize that we're moving into um, not just a politically tumultuous 2022 election season, but we need to understand the risks that that could break out into violence. Now, we're never going to be able to put a probability number on that, but we can do things to better survey and understand and diagnose um, the degree and risks of political violence in America. And those tools look a lot like the tools we would do in overseas conflicts. Um, when we want to know what are the prospects here of uh, the stability of Afghanistan going forward, we're not just measuring counting number of Taliban, we're doing surveys of the Afghan population in order to see just how uh, legitimate or illegitimate the average Afghani believes their government is, just how secure they feel, just what are their attitudes, because that environment 
of uh, the political, um, the, the public environment um, is ultimately the sea within which um, violent folks swim and gain sustenance, gain oxygen, if you would, from that pu- public support. So, Bob, one more one more question before we get to the polling. Are you tracking the outcomes of each of these arrests, you know, whether they turn into indictments, plea bargains, guilty, not guilty? Are you are you tracking that as well? We, we are. The, the, that end of the pipeline in terms of plea bargains is just now starting to populate with enough N, enough numbers that we might be able to see patterns. So um, about 50 to date um, have pled guilty. That is, they've. Um, and so over time, those numbers are likely to grow rather substantially, especially over the next four to five months. So that end of the pipeline is something that we're going to be able to study uh, more, not just study, but understand more clearly in the coming months. So yes, the answer is we are tracking it through the whole pipeline. Um, But no, you don't have that many of the 600 having gone all the way through to sentencing um, to be able to get that much additional clarity as of today, September 13th, um, I think by January 6, 2022, that's going to be a different story. It takes time to just move through our, our, our uh, due process. So the new polling work, which, which I think is absolutely fascinating and which you, you've shared with me already. Before we get to the, to the results, though, Bob, why did you do the survey and what were the nature of the questions and what were you trying to get at? The reason we did the survey is because of what we learned from studying the 600 arrested for breaking in the Capitol. That is that the 600 are far more mainstream than previous far-right extremist violence. Um, And that right there told us we needed to understand the degree of those insurrectionist sentiments in the wider population, not just um, those who were arrested. So think about it this way. Um, We are often in law enforcement, we're often um, looking for a needle in a haystack. Uh, But here, it's very important to understand what the haystack looks like. So it's very important to get a broader understanding of the communities, the populations that these needles are coming from, um, because they are much more reflective of uh, the mainstream. But that means we need to understand those sentiments in the mainstream. Now, this doesn't tell us everything we want to know. So um, uh, our um, studies so far also suggest that political leaders such as Donald Trump calling for um, people to come to the Capitol on January 6th, uh, encouraging strength directly against the Capitol and weak Republicans in the Capitol, uh, that uh, may well have been quite important in terms of how that collective violence occurred. But what we want to understand is what is the degree of the sentiments in the population that political figures may be able to incite? Um, And if that's very, very tiny and trivial, then it's not really going to matter very much. If it's sizable, however, then we need to realize that um, the ability to have uh, replays of January 6th-like events could be far more possible than we think. 
So is it fair to say that what you're trying to measure here is the Tinder, right? And whether that that fire gets lit is is another issue, right? And and we can think about that. But what you're trying to measure here is how much how much dry fuel there is here. I think that's a great analogy. So when we look at wildfires on the West Coast, we know it takes a lightning strike typically to be the match that sets off the fires, but it's the tinder underneath that are drying out during global warming that's really creating the possibility of wildfires in some places and not others. So yes, there may well be specific matches that are also going to be important as triggers, but it's the underlying hay in the haystack that's actually gonna do the burning. And that's why we need to understand what that tinder, the scope of that tinder um, and what it looks like if we're going to really get a sense of our vulnerability to those fires. Bob, how many people were surveyed and when were they surveyed? Yeah, so our survey um, was fielded by NORC at the University of Chicago, which is one of the oldest and most respected polling agencies in the United States. Um, It is based on a nationally representative sample. So it's not just a handful of of undergraduates dialing phones or sending emails. Um, It's done with a very well-constructed panel at NORC called Amerispeak, which is 40,000 strong. That is, NORC spends enormous sums of money to create nationally representative pools of 40,000 Um, And they refresh that, they repopulate that, and that's used by the Washington Post. That's used by the White House for uh, COVID. In fact, uh, the White House has recently, over the last several months, uh, talked about some of the COVID polling studies uh, here. Uh, These kind of panels are the strength um, that are also very expensive. Um, So it's not just a $500 poll. Now, from that 40,000, The draw is a random draw of 1,000. In our case, it was 1,070. And they're a random sample from that carefully put together panel of 40,000. And then the statisticians at NARC, uh, they, of course, look at what the uh, results are, and they then know and can tell you if, in fact, the random sample is biased in certain ways or not compared to the national average. So all that is to say that the methods underneath the poll that we did are the gold standard. Um, There is no better standard. It's the standards that are used by the top uh, media uh, in the the United States, the the federal government in the United States. Uh, We're using those very same gold standard uh, polling methods to get at the uh, sentiments related to political violence in the United States. And because you're drawing your thousand from this this representative sample of forty thousand, that a thousand can give you give you robust results on the overall population. Is that is that fair? Exactly. It allows us to have the confidence within about two percent. So the mar- there's still a margin of error, but it's actually a very respectable plus or minus two percent and allows us to extrapolate from the thousand to the entire population 
of adults in the United States. So there are about 255 million adults in the United States. Uh, this process allows us to, uh, with our survey, um, do a nationally representative sample, which then can be extrapolated to the population as a whole with about plus or minus 2%. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Bob Pate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so that's that's great background, Bob. So walk us through the results. So the key issues we wanted to understand are what are the scope and drivers of insurrectionist sentiments in the United States? Um, and so we asked questions directly on point. Number one, we asked um, whether people believe the use of force was justified to restore former President Trump to the White House. We also asked whether people believed that the 2020 election was stolen and Joe Biden was an illegitimate president. That is, we asked tougher questions than you typically see in political surveys of these topics. We're not asking just about support for Donald Trump in a political way, would you vote for him? We're asking, do you believe force is justified to restore him to the White House? We're not asking, are you have some doubts or concerns um, about the 2020 election? We're asking, do you believe Joe Biden is an illegitimate president? These are the harder edge questions. Um, and again, I want to liken them to the background that we have in asking tough questions like this in, say, Afghanistan. Uh, where we want to know, um, does the Afghan population believe the Afghan government that we installed is legitimate or illegitimate? And we're asking the same kind of tough questions here um, in the United States. Um, and what we discovered, what we discovered was something really quite astounding. We, we decided to spend a little bit of time before releasing it to the public because we went back to our NORC folks. We wanted to make sure we've got this story exactly right because what we're finding here surprised us as much as anybody else. Um, this uh, was done at the end of June. So it was done six months after the insurrection. It was done after people had been arrested uh, by the hundreds and hundreds for the insurrection. Um, and what we discovered was that 9% of American adults, which equates to 23 million people, believed that force was justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Within that 9%, over half, that is 5% of all American adults, strongly agreed that force was justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. That's 12 million American adults. 
Um, that's much larger than any of us would have thought before this poll. We further uh, discovered that effectively 65 million Americans, that's 26% of American adults, believe that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Um, and that again, over half of that number strongly agree. Now, when you put both of those beliefs together, that is, do you both believe that force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency and believe that um, Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, you get 8% of American adults having both of these radical beliefs. These are truly adamant insurrectionist beliefs because they agree on both. And that equates to 21 million adults. So that's really quite a worrisome pool of insurrectionist sentiments in the country. And it's something that then we've gone further um, and we asked further questions about the drivers because we wanted to know what are the drivers of what puts you in that 21 million compared to the other, say, 200 plus million who are not in that, uh, have those, are those adamant insurrections? What's the big separators? And there are two things, Michael, that really jumped out. 63%, the number one factor, 63% of the 21 million adamant insurrectionists in the country uh, believe in the great replacement. The idea that the rights of whites will be overtaken by the rights of blacks and Hispanics. The second most important driver was a QAnon belief where 53% of the 21 million uh, believe that our government is run and controlled by a satanic cult of pedophiles. Those are the two radical beliefs that are really underneath drive the key drivers of um, the insurrectionist sentiments in the country today. So the first one, right, the, the replacement theory is, is, you know, that makes sense, right? That makes sense to me. The second one is just so far outside of reality that you wonder how people in that large number can believe such a thing. Uh, that that's exactly right, Michael. And by the way, that's how um, why we're now moving forward to still further uh, deeper analysis of those sentiments in the U.S. public. Uh, much the way we use testing to understand the degree of COVID and different variants of COVID in the general population, we need to do uh, similar testing or surveys of the degree of insurrectionist sentiments in the United States and the variants on those sentiments. That is how science works and how science adds clarity so that we can really develop uh, useful tools here um, that can help inoculate us in the future. So understanding where we are today, um, we now know that there are, just like with COVID, that there were certain subpopulations that were especially vulnerable. We now understand that. So the next step is for us to do more work. Uh, so as we speak, uh, we are getting ready to field uh, not just surveys, but uh, focus groups, which are essentially deep conversations, with people who hold these beliefs, because 
my work has been a combination over the last 30 years of uh, qualitative and quantitative social science. So I definitely understand that we don't just want to have, you know, um, broad understanding. We want to have deep and rich understanding. And so rather than just though make guesses here, we really want to do this based on empirical knowledge. Um, and so uh, I am with you. I want to know, I also want to know more about the Great Replacement because I want to know, well, what fears exactly are underneath this? Is this a fear of economic loss? Is this a fear of physical safety? There's a number of different possibilities about why someone might be so concerned with the Great Replacement. They'd want to overturn our Constitution. You see, so this isn't just a degree of prejudice the way we normally seem to understand it, um, or in the case of the QAnon called a, a degree of like bizarre beliefs the way we understand it. We mean these are beliefs that are motivating people to uh, want to overturn the Constitution. That's we really need to do some more work to understand that, and we're actually making quite quite rapid progress here um, as the way you know science goes. You might remember it took us you know a long time to get a grip on COVID, and we're still wrestling with that. Um, and so we're doing the same thing here. So at the moment, we now understand much more clearly the scope and the core drivers of the phenomenon. Uh, we also understand something else that really opens the door to a potential helpful future. Because we also ask people about how they think about different levels of government in terms of friend or enemy. And what we discovered is not surprisingly um, about half of uh, folks who have these adamant insurrectionist beliefs uh, see the federal government as an enemy. So of course, if you're gonna overturn the constitution, you might not be too surprised about that. But what we were surprised to find um, is that 75% of those um, saw the local government, their local government as either a friend or at least neutral. That is, this was not just a generalized hatred or animosity toward any type of government. Um, and what that tells us is that we may well be able to work more with mayors and local governments here uh, than we thought. So um, that's one of, the, one of the issues here is, well, just what level would you try to cut into this? And um, we're, we've learned something very important this summer. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bob, one of the things that struck me about the survey was you actually looked at both the views of people regarding political violence and their capacity to engage in it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so it's very important to take into account not just somebody's willingness um, to uh, be either aggressive or uh, to have angry sentiments against the uh, U.S. government and U.S. Constitution, but their capacity. 
And capacity in this uh, situation means uh, relationship to gun, gun ownership, or relationship to the U.S. military. And what we discovered is that about 15% of those with these insurrectionist sentiments are um, uh, have military service. And that may seem at first like a relatively small amount, um, but what that means is that we actually have um, a core where there's some skills and violent skills in this rather large pool of adamant insurrectionists. So what does that mean for us as we go forward? Well, now that we know that, we know that there is a significant capability component to uh, these insurrectionist sentiments. Uh, we are going forward, and I've been asked uh, this summer by the Pentagon to study what makes individuals uh, with military service susceptible to um, insurrectionist sentiments or recruitment by uh, militia and extremist groups. Um, and we uh, are about to uh, go forward with that uh, survey um, in uh, just the very near term. But that too is just the natural next step. So this is how science progresses. So we learn something about the sentiments, something about the capability. Now we have real reason to focus on those more uh, difficult diagnostics um, to really drill into the size of those particular tumors. And the capability side is important because it's not just a will that leads to um, the actual activity of insurrection, uh, it's will plus capability. And so it's very important that we tackle both sides of that at the same time. Yeah. So, so one of the things that struck me is that there's a difference, right, between someone saying violence is justified and that same person being willing themselves to engage in violence. And I'm just wondering how you think about that. Uh, that is for sure. And that is true um, also when we study political violence overseas, so that we know that only a small fraction of uh, people who are willing to engage in violence will ultimately engage in violence. Um, what's important to see is that the size of the pools matter tremendously. So internationally, it matters tremendously whether um, an international terrorist group has 300 and whether that 300 is a um, part of an iceberg that's above, above the waterline, say 10% of the waterline. Uh, and so we want to know the size of the underlying iceberg, not just simply the part that's actually mobilized. Same here. Um, so we can't really say, I wish we had really precise metrics to say, oh, it's one in 10 or one in 15 that we really have to, uh, uh, we can really say could be, would be actually mobilized. I'm afraid we can't quite go that far. Um, but what we can do is we can look at things like how far people had to travel to D.C. to uh, be engaged in the insurrection itself on January 6th, going back to our first set of studies. And what we discover is that we can actually make some capability assessments. And that's important as we go forward because we could also then extrapolate that to more localized uh, areas in the 2022 election where we can see, oh, so the distance to a state capital may be much shorter 
than the distance to Washington, uh, D.C., and that can help us establish real risk assess assessments for different states in the 2022 election. Bob, do you have any sense if you survey Muslims worldwide, what percent of them would, a, would, a, would, would say that violence is justified to defend their religion? I'm, I'm trying to make a comparison here at the end of the day between the insurrectionist movement and Islamic extremists. Uh, so we have at particular points in time done exactly those kinds of studies. Uh, let me use a case that many of your listeners will be familiar with. Um, that is uh, the Palestinians and Israel in the 90s and then in the um, second Intifada. So in that situation, um, that conflict went on long enough that we had quite good opinion polls of Palestinian attitudes toward uh, violence and particularly suicide terrorism over a period of time from, say, the 1990s through 2005, the, second, uh, the height of the Second Intifada. Uh, and what you can see in those polling numbers is that in the 90s, relatively small numbers of Palestinians believed that um, uh, suicide attacks were justified to uh, end Israeli occupation. But during the Second Intifada, those numbers spiked up. They spiked up to well over 50 percent. And that went side by side with the growth and the actual violence. So it's not like what you saw was the growth of the violence separately from the rise of uh, support, uh, public support for that violence. You saw them go up together, side by side. Now, be, let's, be, let's understand, there's many things that also happen <laughs> to trigger those. Um, uh, we have leaders of Hamas, we have uh, uh, terrorist leaders. I don't mean to say that the uh, understanding um, the general public's attitudes to violence is the only predictor of the future of violence. However, I do think that it is an important um, part of context, and it's the part of the context we often overlook. Uh, because these require tools of social science. These require tools that are not simply investigative tools of individual cases. Um, so it's a different kind of understanding of intelligence. It's not really tactical. It's more at the strategic level. Uh, but it is a very important part of the picture. Um, and I dare say, had we had such polls back in December of, of uh, 2020, we might have been much better positioned to expect uh, violence on January 6th. Um, I believe the key missing ingredient, if I you know, had a time machine, we could redo this, uh, was not to get better tactical intelligence on what was going to happen on January 6th. It was to get better uh, strategic understanding of the sentiments here that political leaders um, could touch off. Um, and it wouldn't take much to touch them off because the sentiments were already um, dry, kindling, ready to be set afire. So I think the same thing uh, happens here with Palestinians and terrorism. And that's a documentable case where we've had many, many years of data uh, and your listeners will be able, many of them will actually know this from what I'm saying, um, will be able to see a tremendous amount of evidence to support what I'm saying in the Palestinian case. 
Yeah, yeah. The reason I asked the question, Bob, is 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 I was having drinks with um with a foreign ambassador on the tenth of January, and we were of course talking about January sixth, and he said to me, "Michael, this is your Al Qaeda." That really struck me. Let me just just finish up with big picture question here, Bob. How dangerous is this? Do you think in the and 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 in particular, you know, in the context of American history, have we you know have we seen times like this? How dangerous is this? Well, this is, um, it, we have not seen a mob, anything like the mob we saw in January 6th, um, attack uh, the Capitol in our country ever, because it's a domestic mob. Uh, when people point back to events that might be similar in, say, the War of 1812, that's a long time ago, of course, but it was also the British. This was not American attacking our own most cherished symbol of democracy. So back to Al-Qaeda. So on 9-11, we'll remember that fourth plane, um, the one that went down in Shanksville, thanks to the bravery of those passengers, many believe that that target was the U.S. Capitol. And why the U.S. Capitol? Uh, because that, in many ways, is the undeniable symbol of our American democracy. Um, and so this is um, historically unprecedented. If you look at other democracies around the world, uh, the last time the Israeli Knesset had a mob attack, it was 1952, so a long time ago. Um, if you look at the British Parliament, never since World War II. If you look at the German Parliament, the Bundestag, uh, never since World War II. Um, so we are not seeing in mature democracies like the United States, uh, Britain, others in Western Europe, anything like this behavior as a routine matter. Um, and we need to understand that since January 6th, there's been a tremendous effort to legitimate uh, the actions um, of those um, in, um, uh, who, who acted on January 6th. Um, in fact, um, we have television channels now, One America, uh, Newsmax, that routinely are uh, legitimating uh, these um, actions as legitimate acts of patriotism. And that's really something that we need to understand is also very different and very new. We're not used to thinking that a patriot means overturning the existing constitutional process in the United States. That's something that um, we, we really don't want to see evolve any further. And the only way I think um, that we can be confident is by, do, is by really having real science and social science come in to monitor uh, insurrectionist sentiments over time, uh, see um, uh, how these are ebbing and flowing. Um, are they getting worse? How best can we act before the next event, before our uh, 2022 election? Should we do, be deploying the National Guard to different state houses around the country? Well, these sur surveys of insurrectionist sentiments are going to be our best strategic information to help mayors, governors, and our national leaders make those very, very difficult decisions. They won't be the only piece of information, but short of the event happen, those events happening again, this is our best way to um, uh, monitor those, those, those possibilities. And they're important because 
what would have happened? Could we imagine what would have happened had um, Joe Biden not been certified by um, the Congress here on January 6th? What life in our country would have been like it if it even had taken three days to certify? This, this is really not something we want to confront. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. When you um, get those focus group results, we'd love to have you back on and walk us through them. This is obviously an extraordinarily important issue. But thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you, as always, for allowing a very full uh, discussion of uh, the information that we have. Um, this is one of the, your podcast is one of the most valuable things we have for our security on many issues going forward. And it's a privilege to be part of it. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. That was Professor Bob Pape. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.